Well, we continue to be in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to an event like last week's event of the healing of the centurion's servant that Jesus, uh, all the way back in chapter 4, ties to events with both Elijah and Elisha some hundreds of years earlier. In fact, you can think of today's sermon as directly tied to last week's sermon and almost kind of a part two of that. Well, we are in chapter 7, beginning with verse 11, but we're also going to spend time, at least assuming, and I'll, I'll kind of walk us through it quickly, uh, 1 Kings 17 as well as 2 Kings 4. So if you want to take note of that to go back and read later, that's, that's great. All right, Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word in your Son, and we pray that through your Spirit, again, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that you, O Lord, through your Spirit, would apply this text in just the right ways to each of us here in this place, that we might fully see, or at least more fully see, how good you are and how steadfast, full of love you are, and how your ways are the best ways, and that we might in turn walk in those ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we saw that Jesus anticipated the moments in chapter 7 with the healing of the centurion's servant and the raising of the widow's son here in what we just read with his sermon in Nazareth in chapter 4, where after his hometown synagogue rejected his preaching, he compared the current generation that he was preaching to with the generations of northern Israel under Elijah and Elisha's prophetic ministry. And during that time, uh, no lepers were healed in Israel. Only the uh, Baal-worshipping Syrian general named Naaman, who was healed and cleansed and in turn came to faith. That event in 2 Kings 5 lines up with the centurion and his servant that we looked at last week. And no widows were helped in Israel either because of the famine as judgment that God had rendered on Israel it's safe to assume lots of widows were suffering, but only the widow of Zarephath, a woman living in Sidon outside of Israel, she was helped by God, and through Elijah, her only son was raised from the dead. So she too came to know the true God, and that event in 1 Kings 17, as well as a very similar event in 2 Kings 4 with Elisha, lines up with our passage today. In Luke 4, uh, the synagogue in Nazareth, if you remember that passage, uh, immediately understood what Jesus meant when he used uh, those two events under Elijah and Elisha's ministry. And it meant that, one, Jesus was saying that despite looking orthodox, which they did, 
By rejecting the word of Jesus, they were really just as wicked as uh, the people of northern Israel that rejected the word of Elijah and Elisha. And two, if they continued to reject Jesus' word, which meant they rejected him as Lord and King, they also would face judgment. I mean, after all, northern Israel soon after Elisha ceased to be Israel and went into Assyrian captivity, the very thing that Jonah feared, if you'll remember from our studies in the, the evening series. Uh, and in turn, the offer of life with God would go to a people who are not my people, someone like, say, Naaman, or the widow of Zarephath, or, in the case of last week, a Roman centurion. So as we saw last week, the parable of, like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus is proclaiming the word of the kingdom to whoever will hear it. And those who hear his word and respond to it are his disciples, or as Jesus says in the book of John, his sheep know his voice. Those who have ears but do not hear, that is, their ears work just fine and they're listening to Jesus preach, but they do not respond, they reject his word, they are not his sheep, and in turn are not his disciples. And as he warned at the end of the Sermon on the Plains, instead of building their house on the rock, which is Christ himself, they have built their house without a foundation and cannot withstand the coming judgment. Well, we read in verse 11 that soon after he had healed the centurion's servant, we don't know exactly how long, but pretty soon after, he went to his town not far off called Nain, and a great crowd followed him there. And now this is still in the area that would have been considered the northern uh, kingdom of Israel under, during the time of Elijah and Elijah. So all these events are kind of coordinating with the same time period, or geographically the same time period as those two great prophets. So I think it's safe to presume, then like what we saw with the Sermon on the Plains, that this was a mixed crowd containing his apostles or also his committed disciples, because there was an additional group of people who were also committed disciples, but also the curious, or those along for a show, or as well as his, his enemies and his, his critics. And verse 12 tells us that he was drawing near to the gate of the town of Nain, when Jesus encounters a funeral procession of, procession, excuse me, of a man who was the only son of his mother, who was herself a widow, and a big crowd was going with her to the funeral outside the city gates. So two crowds, get this in your mind, two crowds were converging at the same time outside the city gates at the intersection of Jesus and this, this dead son and this, this, this funeral. And it's not only a dead son, it's the only son of a widow. Now, while Mary, the mother of Jesus, certainly had other children besides Jesus, the details here do hint at the coming death of the only begotten Son of the Father, even as it is safe to assume at this point that Mary herself was most likely a widow. After all, we don't hear about Joseph much longer after Jesus' birth. Well, with verse 13, Luke tells us that when the Lord saw her, and this is the first instance in Luke's gospel where Luke, as an author, refers to Jesus specifically in these terms, though other people in his gospel have addressed Jesus like this, namely Peter in chapter 4 and say the leper in chapter 5. 
But Luke is now, as the author, making explicit that the Holy One of Israel, the one that John the Baptist proclaimed, prepare the way of the Lord, is the Lord God of Israel come in the flesh in the person of Jesus. So right from the start of this passage, we the readers, because he's assuming a Christian audience really reading uh, his gospel, that we the readers are told that Jesus is God himself, but will others witnessing this event recognize him as such? Will they recognize him as the Lord? And it says that when the Lord saw her, and again, that's evaluation language, he, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. So this is the exact same kind of compassion, same, same word, that's on view with the Good Samaritan, that will show uh, compassion to his Jewish enemy in Luke 10.33, or to, uh, it's the same kind of compassion that the father shows his prodigal son, same word in Luke 15, 20. And as Arthur just comments, he says, compassion is the motive. It's the motive for the miracle. And the miracles Jesus performs show that the inbreaking messianic reign of God is one of grace. And it's motivated by God's compassion for his people and humanity at large. So while Jesus does bring judgment, he does. What moves him to lead with mercy, which we've seen all the way through Luke's Gospels, with every miracle, it's compassion. It's compassion. So compassion is not merely an emotion, like maybe you get stirred up by a piece of music or you're watching a movie and it, it kind of moves you a little bit. No, no, no. Compassion is a deep stirring that we feel in our gut that we must act to help someone. This is what every good parent feels when they see their child suffering in pain or they hear that blood-curdling cry and they can't help but move to act. So Jesus sees this woman. He evaluates her situation and he is moved to act because of his compassion. Notice, too, that no one asked him to act. No one asked him to do anything. Previous miracles, that happens. In this case, they don't. Why? Well, he has performed some incredible miracles, but come on, dead is dead, right? Dead is dead. So, so no one's going to ask Jesus, can't you just possibly raise? Or if you think about with Lazarus, if you had been here... He might not have died, but no one thinks, let's ask this guy to raise someone from the dead. So Jesus doesn't wait to be asked. He, initiate, he initiates what happens here. And God, you see, always initiates salvation. So often humanity does not go looking for it. Maybe to ourselves, I can fix myself, but God is the one who always initiates salvation. So in verse 14, Jesus comes up to the funeral bier and he touched it, something that would have made any other Jew ritually unclean. And we saw the same thing at work when he touched the leper to heal him in chapter 5. Now remember, like we saw last week with Naaman the leper, to be ritually unclean is to have uh, symbolic death. And in turn, a person was not permitted into the temple. So to be declared clean then is to have symbolic death removed. 
and to be granted access to God's presence in the temple. This is exactly what's on view, for example, in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah, after being ushered into the heavenly throne room, this is what he says. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, which is an indication that his confession is dirty. It's, he has a, a sinful heart. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So because Isaiah is unclean. He actually really is dead, spiritually dead. Because he's a man covered in death, he should die for being in God's presence. God's not going to become unclean. You can't make God unclean. No, he burns up uncleanness. So a seraphim, literally a burning cherubim, takes a coal from the altar, and the altar implies sacrificial worship before God, just like you see with worship in the temple, because the temple is modeled on God's throne room, so on earth as it is in heaven. And the seraphim touches Isaiah's lips with the burning coal, and he is atoned for, and he's made clean, and could now stand in God's presence in the heavenly temple. In fact, not only does he stand, he can dialogue with God. This is what Peter recognizes about Jesus after the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 4. His confession of sin is virtually the same. It's why Jesus uh, does for the leper. It's what Jesus does for the leper in chapter 5, and it is also what he does for the son of the widow here in chapter 7. And of course, it's instructive from last week that Elisha did not touch Naaman because he could not without becoming unclean himself. Normal humans cannot make other humans clean. Jesus is categorically, categorically different. He makes other people clean without becoming unclean himself, which is something, of course, only God can do. So he touches the funeral bier and then by his word raises the man from the dead. He says, young man, I say to you, that is by his own authority, by his own word, arise and he did and verse 15 tells us that the dead man sat up and began to speak and we can only imagine the sorts of things he had to say and Jesus then gave him to his mother and that last phrase and Jesus gave him to his mother is exactly the same phrase that occurs in 1st Kings 17 when Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son and in turn 2nd Kings 4 when Elisha raised the Shunammite's son. And we'll come back to those two passages shortly because they're important. That Jesus raised this man from the dead, though, is not merely an incredible show of his power, though it is that, because he himself, like God his Father, he holds the power of life and death. And he's giving a foretaste of what he is ushering into the world. The goal of salvation and arguably I would say this pattern begins as far back as Genesis 2 with the creation of Eve. The goal of salvation is resurrection into a glorified bodily life lived in communion with God. And this is precisely what Adam and Eve gave up, but they did not want. Now, I intentionally talk about the resurrection and new creation as often as I can, not merely because it is the hope of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and not merely because it is our future. Our future life is resurrected, glorified life in communion with God. And all this stuff is true. I talk about it a lot because Christians 
in our circles have either underplayed the significance of resurrection at the expense of playing up Jesus' atoning death, which clearly is a central concern too, or maybe it's far worse, they've denied the resurrection altogether and in turn denied the new creation. Not long ago, for example, I spoke with two Christians who had attended church all their life and they really doubted me when I said the Bible not only teaches the literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead and by implication, he's fully human right now at the right hand of the Father, but that resurrection is the future for all his people. I mean, just go read Paul's take on this in 1 Corinthians 15, and you will see just how important he thought resurrection and new creation is and how he thought it was already breaking into the world. But to put it another way, it's like what Reverend Mike Graham, a PCA missionary church planner working kind of between Italy and Croatia right now, this is how he recently put it in one of his newsletters. He said, all of my apologetic work in presenting the gospel, that is trying to defend the truth of the gospel to, I guess you could say his cultural critics, it typically boils down to this question, was Jesus raised from the dead or not? That's Paul's basic take too. Again, just go read 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus was not literally raised from the dead, not as a phantom or as a spirit, but as a fully human man, just like we see in our passage today, then his opponents, the scribes, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, those who crucified him were not only right about Jesus, that he was a rebellious son and a false teacher, but they were right for crucifying him. And by implication, everything we're doing here is utter foolishness. And by extension, if you really start to think through this, by extension, the last 2,000 years and the Western culture that has been so deeply influenced by Christianity with all its talk about rights and equality and justice, all that stuff is foolishness too because such things are not real. They are moral-sounding fictions. And godless nature, well, it's not interested in rights. And it's not interested in equality. And all those beliefs, as Nietzsche pointed out in the 1800s, are no better than the morality of slaves wanting to elevate themselves over their betters. Equality or the dignity of every human life then is a fantasy. It's make-believe. And as everyone knows, there's no such thing as equals. I mean, think about it. Men are superior to women simply based on physical strength alone. The educated are superior to the uneducated or those with low IQs. And like we see in nature, the strong deserve to rule over the weak and the frail. No, we deserve to use them however we want. That's certainly how ancient cultures before the impact of Christianity saw things. And it's how the Nazis and the communists in the 20th century in rejection of Christianity, that's how they saw things too. After all, no human civilization apart from the influence of Christianity ever thought it was a good idea to abolish slavery. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was, then not only was all his teaching vindicated, including the teaching of the Old Testament, that forthrightly says all humans are created in God's image. He actually and truly ushered in the new creation of the world of which his own resurrection was merely the first fruits. 
that first apple of the apple harvest and what a great harvest was to come, the beginning of everything that we hope for and can look forward to. So this miracle is no small thing. It's anticipating what was to come in Jesus himself, the only begotten son of Mary who died and was raised to life. But why does Luke specifically use the exact same phrasing? And I mean, it's exact same phrasing with what Elijah and Elisha did in First and Second Kings. And why does Jesus himself tie this moment to it as well? Well, while we do not have time, I promise, to uh, go do a thorough study of those two passages, I'm not going to do three sermons, uh, it's important to notice the context uh, for when those resurrections happened. So when Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son, it came during the reign of King Ahab, who is described in this way in 1 Kings 16, beginning with verse 30. It says this, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sugub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Well, to get at what that's after, you have to begin with the sin of Jeroboam, the, the king who broke away and took northern Israel uh, with him after Solomon's death, essentially splitting the kingdom in two. So his sin was not merely to split the kingdom, but was to break the second commandment by way of setting up an alternate worship center in Shechem, which was a place known for worship under Abraham, obviously before the establishment of the tabernacle with Moses. And Jeroboam repeated the sin of the golden calf at Mount Sinai, as in, these calves are Yahweh. He made them. These calves are Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. You can worship Yahweh here. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. And you can worship him through these golden calves. That was his sin. And it was repeated generation after generation. King Ahab, by establishing Baal worship, complete with a temple to Baal. And hopefully, as I was reading that, you could hear how often Baal was repeated. It was showing just how bad this, this was. By establishing Baal worship, complete with a, a temple to Baal, and marrying Jezebel, which is a play on Baal, uh, the daughter of King Ethbaal in Sidon, in a political alliance. And Ethbaal means basically Baal is with him. It's kind of like Joshua means our God saves. It's the same kind of idea, idea except with Baal. And by erecting an Asherah pole, and Asherah being a Canaanite goddess of fertility, he made the sin of Jeroboam look like a light thing, as if Jeroboam was a pretty good guy. We also read that Hael of Bethel made the decision to build back Jericho in defiance of God's destruction of it through uh, Joshua 
and, and, and he sacrificed two of his sons, one for the foundation of the city, and then one for the construction of the city gates. So to put that in context, hundreds of years earlier with the conquest of Canaan, the book of Joshua recounts these words after the destruction of Jericho. It says, Joshua laid an oath on them, that is Israel, at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gate. So in other words, Hiel knew this. He knew this curse, and he said, I will gladly pay it. I will gladly kill my firstborn and youngest sons and be cursed by God in order to have this city, this stronghold. So it's Cain and Lamech and Nimrod and Babel and Sodom all over again. And what we are meant to see by these descriptions is a time in northern Israel that was thoroughly in rebellion against God and thoroughly heinous ways, having turned to gods, really demons, of foreign nations and looking to them for their future and their prosperity. So thus Ahab, he establishes Baal worship and he establishes an Asherah fertility pole and Hiel, the, the building of Jericho. And in response, God sends Elijah to Ahab and tells him that no rain and not even the dew will come apart from Elijah's word. That is, Ahab, if you have looked to Baal and to Asherah for your life and your prosperity, living according to their word, you and the land will have no fertility for years to come. So this is clearly severe judgment. In fact, in many ways, you could think of it as the exact opposite of the flood. So Elijah, after telling Ahab that he would not see rain or moisture for years, Think about that, moisture even. He goes to Zarephath and Zidon, and the place where Jezebel was from, the land of Baal, so to speak, and he provides for this widow during the time of drought and famine. And eventually her son dies, and she initially blames Elijah for it, as in, your holiness has exposed my sin, and because of that, God is judging me for it. As in, I couldn't hide from his holiness because of you being here. And now I'm getting hammered. And Elijah takes the dead son and prays to God and asks, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And it's very reminiscent, really, of Moses interceding for Israel after the golden calf. He then stretches out three times on the young man. And it's hard to know exactly what Elijah was doing, though it seems to me anyway that he was anticipating Jesus himself in some way. And again, Elijah prayed to God and asked him to raise the young man from the dead. And 1 Kings 17 tells us that God listened to Elijah and did as he asked, something reminiscent of how Abraham dialogued with God over Sodom. And Elijah took the boy and gave him to his mother. There's the same phrase from our own passage. It's the woman's reaction, though, that is key. She says, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord that is in your mouth is truth. What did we say as our, early as our um, call to worship? Psalm 100, know that the Lord 
He is God. She does. She does. So what a prophet says, if, if the word of the Lord is actually in his mouth, if God is actually speaking through him, is to be judged and it's to be evaluated. And this resurrection was proof to the woman that the God of Israel is the true God. Now, as an aside, the standard of judging prophets was actually established in Deuteronomy 13 because God knew many people would stand up and claim to be someone who speaks for the Lord. And the vast majority of, uh, of prophecies were speaking right to that moment, thus says the Lord. But some of them, of course, were future-looking. And all of those, not all of them, but a majority of those future-looking prophecies, I would say maybe 99% of them were short-term. So like Jonah's preaching to Nineveh had a short time span, as in 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So you can wait 40 days and see if the word of the prophet is true. Or in the case of Jesus, I will be crucified, but I will be raised on the third day. So if a prophet's words seemed out of accord with what God had said previous, or if what he predicted did not come true, clearly then uh, the man was a false prophet and should be put to death. It's why after the showdown on Mount Carmel, for example, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, once that fire from heaven comes and wipes everything out, Elijah immediately moves uh, to put the prophets of Baal to death by his own hand, and rightly so. It's why the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate, as we already said, demonstration of the truth of what he preached and why everything that we believe, everything we believe, is dependent upon that. Now, like we saw last week with Naaman, now I know that kind of language is conversion language. And like Naaman, this woman now really knows the Lord. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha encounters a woman in Shunem who is kind to him and provides for him, but is an old woman, and she and her husband have no son. So Elisha in turn tells her that in about a year, she and her husband would have a son. So much like God told Abraham and Sarah they would have a son. And again, this is short term. It's only a year. They're going to know. And Elisha's word is proven true. And the young man is born and he grows up. Thus, Elisha is also a true prophet of God and the woman believes. Well, years later, the young man dies. And in turn, Elisha, through, a, through prayer and a ritual that's a little bizarre, but it's kind of similar to what Elijah does, uh, raises him from the dead. And the difference, though, between Elijah and Elisha is that the Shunammite, though a Gentile, was not a widow and had already come to know the true God when Elijah raised her son and gave her son back to her. That phrase is there, too. Now, you might be asking, okay, this is fascinating, but what's your point? When Elijah and Elisha were ministering, so they are two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. The northern kingdom of Israel was in full-blown rebellion and purposely looked to other gods for life and prosperity, despite what God had already done for Israel. So God, like how he sent Jonah to Nineveh, sent Elijah and Elisha not to the widows of Israel, and there were many of them, but to the enemies of Israel, to widows of a people who were not my people, and gave them life and converted them into his people like he did with Naaman, like he did with the Roman centurion. Why? Because his people didn't want him. They didn't want the life he was offering. So he said, fine, 
I will offer it elsewhere. So how will God's people centuries later, who were not engaging in such evil and vile pagan idolatries, respond to a prophet who is like Elijah and Elisha, yet doing similar things as them, right? Showing mercy and compassion even as he is far greater than them. How will they respond to his word? Well, we read in verse 16 that fear seized the crowds and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So the two crowds together, so the crowd following Jesus and the crowd coming out of Nain for the funeral, all, you know, all matched up together here, they both rightly recognized that something huge has happened. And the language is similar to, to the shepherds at the announcement of Jesus' birth. So they fear, there's great wonder, and they rightly glorify God. So they rightly see that a great prophet has come among them in a manner like Elijah or Elisha, though what Jesus does is far greater. And they rightly see that, that God has visited them. That is, they, they see that God has shown mercy in this moment through Jesus to this woman and her son. The key difference, the key difference between Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus is where the authority to raise the dead actually comes from. For Elijah and Elisha, they pray, and they ask God to do it. Jesus doesn't pray. He simply says, I say to you, arise. This is what makes him orders of magnitude greater. And while Elijah and Elisha were great, they were not Jesus. Only God, as Elijah and Elisha surely knew, can raise the dead. And what's telling, unlike with Elijah and Elisha's miracles, while we do see people glorifying God, we don't see any conversions. We don't see anyone say, now we know Jesus is Lord. We don't see anyone worship Jesus like Peter does on the boat or how Naaman instantly moved to worship even in Syria. So this moment is a critical moment like we've, we've been seeing for the last several weeks, and it's the question, who will respond to the word of Jesus? Who will respond to God's offer of life in him? And what's so beautiful is that as, as a new and better Jonah, Jesus doesn't lead with 40 days and Nineveh is toast. Though he does preach something similar in the Olivet Discourse about the temple, and he did warn in Nazareth about the perils of rejecting his word, even in Nazareth, he leads with compassion. He leads with mercy, and he leads with, with kindness. And this is nothing new, by the way. This is nothing new. From the beginning, God has led with life and the offer of life and compassion and the offering of grace and mercy and communion with him. You can see this with Adam. You can see it with Cain and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the list goes on and on and on. But will his people respond to this outpouring of mercy? Will they receive the offer of life in his son? Or like the generations of Elijah and Elisha, will they go looking for life, go looking for love, you might say, in all the wrong places? So whether we live among you know, wicked, demon-worshipping pagans like in Sidon or Syria or northern Israel or among moralistic, community-minded conservatives like the generation Jesus ministered to. 
the temptation is always to disregard the word of the Lord for some other word and to go looking for life in all the wrong places. So let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Jesus is the word of life. He is your very word come in the flesh. We give you thanks for him. We give you thanks for how he offered himself for us. We pray now as we come into the Lord's Supper that his spirit would be amongst us, that this would be a good time of fellowship with you and with each other, that we would be moved to see how good, how steadfast and loving and kind you truly are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.